to In Other Words, part of Perfect World Network Radio. I am your host, Susan Scher, and my guest today is Angela Ware. Angela, welcome. Well, thank you. Angela went through every parent's worst nightmare. One of her three boys at six years old was diagnosed as having astrocytomas of the brain stem, which is tumors, right? Yes. And the tumors became malignant, right? They didn't start out that way. Yes. Okay. And over the course of the next, what, three and a half years? Three years. Three years. She basically watched her son die. Meanwhile, there's still a family that needs to be dealt with. The other two boys are just as important as the one who's sick. Absolutely. So how do you do all of that? And that's what we're going to talk about. The book that she wrote about this is called One Day We'll Dance Again, A Family's Journey Through Illness and Grief. And that title comes from the fact that you and the boys used to dance when you were in the kitchen preparing dinner, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And when you wrote this book, there was still no dancing. There was no dancing. But there, there is now, isn't there? We're getting to that point. Okay. We're getting to that point. It, it has been 10 years, right? It's actually been nine years. Okay, it's been nine years. Mm-hmm. And you're just now starting to be able to dance again or yes. just go back to the We're old family. To- the, one of the reasons, you know, you see lots of books like this. There's lots of stories, unfortunately. And most of the books try to make it significant and tragic. And the thing is... It doesn't get any more tragic than this. That's correct. You don't have to do anything to make it that way. And what Angela did that was so uh, stunningly effective was she just told the story. And it's, it's just gets just heartrending. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a cliched word, but that's what it is. It, I mean, I don't usually cry at books. I'll cry at movies all the time, but not books. And the first time I read this... I, I cried at the introduction and other parts throughout and at the end, definitely. The second time I read it, I cried through most of the book. And I remember when I first talked to you about it, Angela, I said that it dragged in some portions. Mm-hmm. And you said, which ones? I said, I don't know. Let me read it again and, and see. And what I found was it didn't the second time. The only thing I can figure is I maxed out. You know, I could only feel just so much. I've heard that from people. It seems that the closer you are to our family, the harder it is to read. I would imagine that's true. After reading it the second time, Mm -hmm. I think it was, yeah, it was just, I couldn't get into it anymore. You know, whenever you get too much tragedy, you numb out to it. Yes. And on a very small scale, I think that's what happened to me. And I say this partly because, uh, listeners, this is a great book. But maybe you shouldn't read it all at once. First of all, let's introduce you. You you were and are a working woman, Yes, right? yes, I am. So what do you do? For 20 years, I worked as a legal secretary or paralegal. Mm-hmm. And I did that for quite some time. That's what I was doing when Eric was diagnosed. Where are you baking now? I am baking in a restaurant, Ye Old Town Cafe. Old yes. spelled O-L-D-E. That's correct. Yes. 
And what do you bake? I bake everything now. I bake, <laughs> I bake cookies and cakes and I'm experimenting. We I have been giving giving carte blanche to bake whatever I feel will work. I wow. do banana bread and cranberry cookies and I'm just <laughs> having a wonderful time. Oh, that's great. So this is you found your passion. Yes, yes. Outside of the family. It's wonderful, is, yeah. yes. Oh, how nice. How did that happen? Well, I I like to bake when the children were small. Right, that's and when you I would bake dance in the kitchen. Everything mm-hmm. and and everything was from scratch, and that's just something I did. Mm-hmm. And I stopped baking, of course, when Eric was ill. And then once we opened up the bakery, I was the primary employee since Eric Aaron was in school. Yeah, Aaron was ten. We'll we'll go into more of this <laughs> later, but he was ten when he opened the business. And after the business closed down, I was looking for something, and someone was kind enough to give me a job as a line cook because I had experience in that. Uh-huh. And from there, I sort of backtracked to prep cook. Usually, go from prep cook to line cook. And the owner knew I was a baker, mm-hmm. and she decided after watching me do my job correctly as a prep cook that she'd give me a chance as a baker. Okay. So she allowed me to make a few things, and they sold very quickly, and she said, this is great. <laughs> and I started cranking out baked goods, and oh, that's, that's my great. job now. That's great. What recipes have you created on your own from Whole Cloth? A triple chocolate cake that I used to make for the children for their birthday. Ah. And it's a rich chocolate cake, chocolate icing, and chocolate mini chocolate chips all around. <laughs> and it's it's fantastic. They love it. And it's okay. every birthday I make that, so I'm okay. making that now. But I've tried gluten-free foods. I, I was good. Sh- that was my next yeah, thing. Yeah, we've done gluten-free cookies, sugar-free cookies. I'm not fond of those. I figure if you're going to have a cookie, have a cookie. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. The sugar-free stuff, yeah, and gluten-free, I understand. And we mm-hmm. had a gluten- well, that's not a, yeah. a choice, right? Right. Yeah. And gluten- kids, children who are on gluten-free diets still want something sweet. Sure. And we have gluten-free chocolate chip and oatmeal cookies, and mm. they were very popular. That's wonderful that you are doing your passion now. It's wonderful. It is. That's one of the things. Well, might as well get into the book now. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I noticed was that your husband has a completely different way of handling his grief yes. than you do. Yes. And that can be really difficult, can't it? Yes. Or challenging. We're not very, supposed to say difficult. Yes, very challenging. I called it Venus and Mars, the Venus and Mars syndrome, well, because yeah. the way I dealt with it was so completely foreign to him, and it was difficult for both us, us both to understand how we were dealing with it. Well, yeah, that's the thing. When you like, men tend to handle grief in ways that are, are not as obvious. Yes. And so, what we as women tend to think is they're not feeling it as much as we are. That's right. And that's not true, is it? No, it's not. It's not. Yeah, and that, that's hard for women to deal with. Yes. Because we want them to be the, crying like yes. we are. And to, and to want to talk about well, or it. Or at least and, holding us and listening yes. to us. And men, a lot of them are great at that. But a lot of them, when they are in the midst of the tragedy too, simply can't do that. That's right. So how do you deal with that? We had a difficult time dealing with it because I wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't want to talk about it. When Eric was ill... We agreed that I would 
since I was his primary caregiver, Mm -hmm. I had all the information that I would make the decisions. Mm -hmm. And I usually made those decisions after discussing it with him. Mm -hmm. Um, He was on a different level. I understood the road we were on and where this would ultimately take us. And he refused to believe anything but Eric would be fine. That's that's another thing. Something... I don't necessarily think it's if you carry the child and, you know, give birth to it, but the mothers tend to be the primary caregivers. Yes. And that has an effect, like like little girls, for instance, they can wrap their fathers around their fingers. Their fathers don't see anything they do wrong. And the mother's like, I don't think so, honey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you go back and change, or you put that back, or something. Um, and... I think they they have almost a more realistic view of the child because it's not so much magic to them. They were there during the whole process. Mm-hmm. This is my theory. I don't know if it's true. But they can see the child's flaws better than the father usually can. They can accept the reality of what's going on more easily than the father usually can. And that's exactly what happened here, I, isn't yes, it? Yes, and I believe that. I believe that. There, there's some people who see, who can see what is happening mm-hmm. and and deal with it and work with it, and there are people who distance themselves from it mm-hmm. and make their own reality. Well, yeah, and I think it tends to be the primary, the, the non-primary caregiver who does that. Yes. Partly because they, they can have, afford they to. they can do that. Yes. yes. <laughs> they can. They can do that. So where did you get the support you needed? Who did you talk to? My sister was fantastic. She mm-hmm. was absolutely fantastic. She dropped everything to be there mm. for me mm-hmm. and Eric. And my, I had a cousin by marriage. Her mm-hmm. name is Carol. And she, your, your had, sister is Lisa, right? My sister is Lisa, and Aunt Carol, who's also in the book, she had some medical background, and she too saw what was happening, mm-hmm. and she was fantastic with emotional support and being there for the other children. Yeah, you like I say, they are just as important. Yes, but you don't have the, the resources. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> you can't. You can only spread yourself so thin. Yeah. And it's important to have a, a network of people who can be there for you. Mm-hmm. I found so many surprises in in the people who were there for us, mm-hmm. um, co-workers, and, that I never thought would, would jump in. And you got a lot of support from your church family, too. Absolutely. My church was there. I had a speed dial to the pastor's personal phone, mm-hmm. and he was there every time we needed him. And it's so imperative that you have those people in your system. One thing that impressed me about the church family, and, and, and I, I know this is true, um, you one, each woman would take a turn helping you, and when you didn't need them to do that anymore, they were disappointed, they were the ones who upset. hadn't gotten a chance to help. <laughs> they were quite upset. They yeah. had really gotten into it. The women being there from the church helped so much and lightened the mood because I was able to talk to someone, mm-hmm. and, and it was it was great. I don't know what I would have done without them. Well, yeah, because let's face it, you have to have somebody to talk to who is older than six. Yes. You need to have girlfriends. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but, you know, that's always the way it is, though, isn't it? If people, people will jump in and help. Yes, if and they know that there's something for them to do. Yes, 
if they can't see it, you can't blame them for not helping. Right. But but they get disappointed if there's nothing they can do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's another thing about this book is you give an excellent resource guide for people who know someone going through this who want to help but don't know how. Yes. And it's, it's great, like things like preparing a... a bag for them that they'll need at the hospital because let's face it when you got to rush your child to the hospital you're not thinking about what you're going to need tomorrow you're not you're not and these people you know bring food in throwaway containers bring plastic utensils i wouldn't have thought of that yes you don't want to put additional pressure on a family to remember whose pot was whose Mm -hmm. and making sure it's washed and gotten back to you or if they drop it and break it it's just too much stress at that point Mm -hmm. and and providing a container that you don't have to worry about anymore is such a blessing that it takes so much pressure off the family yeah and food is one of the things that you do need you always need to eat And in times of stress, be they good or bad stress, you don't do it. That's what you don't do. That's the first thing you let slide. Well, I think you either don't eat or overeat and eat the wrong things. Eat the wrong things, yeah. And you eat what's available, and Mm -hmm. that can be a problem because if there's nothing but junk available, you're going to eat junk. Mm -hmm. when, When this started out, when Eric was first diagnosed, it did look like he was going to beat this, didn't it? It yes. did look like you guys were going to win. Yes, it did. Because the tumor, they, they removed it. The tumor was not malignant. That's correct. As I recall. And other treatments shrank the tumor. Yes. What was left, what they what couldn't get out surgically. Mm-hmm. So what happened? Uh, it turns out he was in remission, and we didn't know that. We thought he was cured. Something stimulated it to grow again, and oh, when it oh, began okay. to grow again. Okay. That's when it be- then when they did another biopsy, and it turned out to be cancerous. That's when mm-hmm. we were in really big trouble. And basically, th- this cancer wraps around the brain stem, right? Yes, and squeezes it pretty much. Yeah, just affects everything. Yes, yes, because your brain stem controls basic necessities: walking, seeing, talking, breathing, breathing. Yes. Yeah. His first uh, symptom was that he started stumbling. Yes, that was the first thing. Yeah, that he he started falling down, and we didn't know why. But being six, you end up with bumps and bruises all the time. Right. And um, it took a little bit of detective work to realize that this was something uh, important happening to him. Now that's something. It, it did look like you were slightly in denial uh, that there would be anything really wrong. With oh, him absolutely. About this. Do you ever? torture yourself with thinking if I had acted sooner oh absolutely now is this a realistic uh, fear on your part it seems to me it's not it is not I've been assured by people who know this Mm -hmm. that uh, we had done everything we could and in fact more because apparently uh, this isn't often caught in an early stage Okay. And for him, it was an early stage. Okay. And we were fortunate enough, and this is one of the things I had to deal with, to to figure out what positive things came out of it. And one of the positive things was we actually got extra time with him. That's right. He was diagnosed at six, and he lasted until he was nine. And I had to learn to appreciate those three extra birthdays, those three Mm -hmm. extra Christmases. It's usually within months. I don't know that. Oh, okay. But it's pretty quick. Okay. And we were we were given three extra years. And another thing you said, you really got a chance to say goodbye. Absolutely. 
there's there's too many people who never get that chance. Talking about um, did you feel guilty and is there any reason to, that's one of the things you talk about, one of the support groups that you went to. Uh, the doctors said, you didn't do this. Yes. It's not because he was sitting too close to the TV. It's not because you ate this when you were pregnant. It's not because that. You didn't do it. We don't know why it happens, but it's not you. It's important to hear that. You have to have somebody tell you that. These were not things that would have caused anything with him. And I know that for certain in my heart because I had identical twins. If it was something that I did, then it would affect both of them. Right. Well, it, it seems to me, too that even though you know that absolutely it's still you your job as a mother is to keep your child safe and That's you do it yes and it's it's hard to deal with that after her son died she started keeping writing a journal to him i visited the doctor today he did most of the talking he said that uh, i have to let you go in order to get through my grief my heart tells my heart tells me that i failed you He, being the doctor, asked me that if I stood before God tomorrow, could I say with all accounting before him that I failed you, that I was a bad mother? No, but God is not my heart. And that's what it comes down to. It doesn't matter what you know. I mean, it does, Mm -hmm. but you still... It's how you process it. You still didn't protect your son. Right. And you always feel that way. Does it make you more nervous about Bryce and Aaron? It doesn't. Okay. I have to say I'm a little surprised. Why doesn't it? Uh, Initially, I was concerned about Aaron. Mm -hmm. Because he's a twin. Because he's a twin. Mm -hmm. Um, I came to the realization that I had to let what happened to him not affect the other children. As Aaron told me once... We were talking about how long we had Eric with us, and he said, Mom, I've known him longer than you have. That's right. And he's absolutely right. Yeah. And that bond is still there, and we don't know how that bond is. Unless you're a twin, you don't understand that bond. A lot of the book is about what came out of my heart. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it to get those things, those feelings. I had to get them onto paper to relieve that burden on me. And when I've was told that the book was published, it was a tremendous weight lifted off of me. If no Mm. one had ever read the book, I had it in writing. It was published. It was done. Once it was done, I was okay. Got to ask you about this one. Um, I don't know where this was. You can see where it was in the book, so maybe you know how old he was at this Mm -hmm. point. But you're saying... Baby, I'm so sorry that Daddy and I couldn't fix this. I'm so sorry. And he propped himself up on an elbow and stared into my eyes. Mom, he said, you've done everything you could, and I know that. You did your best. You're a great mom. You had me. You took care of me. You fed me, and I appreciate it. You talked to the doctors. You stayed with me in the hospital, and you never left me. You did your best. Nine-year-old boy actually said that? Yes, he did. Wow. Yes, he did. He'd always been like that. Oh, he he okay. had a he's always thought on a different level from other children. Wow. And, you know, always, ch- parents always say that their children are unique, but this he truly had an ability to look at things outside the box. 
mm-hmm. unlike his his siblings or his cohorts. They, oh, well, yeah, you'll have a comparison yeah, there, a basis of he, comparison. He definitely always had a different way of thinking. He mm-hmm. had he understood jokes on a different level. He understood uh, puns, mm-hmm. and you know that that's really. I mean, it's funny because you have to be a certain age to understand things like that. Generally speaking, and, yes. And he he developed an even greater sense of awareness as this went on because he knew where it was going. That was another question I was going to ask you. When did he know he wasn't going to get better, or do you have any way of knowing that? I think he knew longer than we did. I would imagine so. I've heard this sort of story. Is that the child waits for the parent to be ready? Yes, but it was there was a point in time where he, I, I allowed him to make his own decision that he'd had enough. Yes, that was at one point in the book, um, and you're at the doctor's. Mm-hmm. You're sitting there, and Eric just says, "No more, mom. That's enough." Mm-hmm. And uh, you said something like, "Baby, do you know what you're saying?" And he said, "Yes." Yeah, he Doctor understood. said, you heard that. And so it was just palliative care from then, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, it was. And excellent care. Excellent care through hospice. And a lot of people don't understand that hospice isn't, the use of hospice is not giving up. Hospice helps tremendously. Things that we had to pay for out of pocket as he was a patient were paid for 100% through hospice. And is this an insurance thing? This is how hospice works. I mean, insurance covers. I think this was through the insurance. We never found out because we never received a bill. Oh, okay. Uh, for instance, uh, he was drinking Pediasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how much it is now, but back then it was three dollars a can, mm-hmm. and we were buying the, the Pediasure two or three cans at a time because we just didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. And through hospice, they found out we wanted Pediasure, and they said, "How much do you want?" Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, he drinks it three or four times a day." And the next day, we had three 36-can cases sitting on the doorstop. You talk about a woman with the insurance company who was just an angel. She was wonderful. She She was wonderful. I wish I could find her now. This isn't the kind of story we usually hear about insurance agents, so I would like to tell the story. I had been told by uh, friends that you could get a case manager through your insurance company and when I called the insurance company, of course, I got the runaround, as we usually do. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I'd like to get a case manager. And they said, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't have that kind of thing. And if you had a case manager, you wouldn't have to explain your problem over and over to different people. you talked talk to that person directly. She'd know what the situation was. She'd know what, what kind of referrals you need or didn't need. And it, it would be great. But I didn't have this. Well, um, I got a call one day from the insurance company and... This woman says, I've been reviewing your files, and I believe you need a case manager. Wow. <laughs> really? Who to thunk She became our case manager. She's the one we called if we had any questions. And they didn't necessarily have to be about the coverage, but things we required. Like That uh, was what impressed me. Mm-hmm. Because she was just dealing with the whole situation, not just what insurance could do. Right, right. And she was actually making suggestions, oh. like, did you know we will pay for that? Yes, she did. And I don't know if she ever got in trouble about that, but that was wonderful. Um, she was furious when she found out that once when he was discharged and couldn't walk, they had wheeled him to the car, and we carried him from then on. Because no one bothered to check about a wheelchair. 
And I was carrying him from place to place, and he had gained a tremendous amount of weight because of the medications he was on. And she says, well, what's going on? I said, well, I just carried him. And she says, what are you talking about? You don't have a wheelchair? I said, no, they discharge us without it. And she said, I'll call you in 20 minutes. And less than two hours later, we had a, a wheelchair compatible for him that could support his head and keep his arms in place because he couldn't hold his head up anymore. That's right. And it was it fit into my trunk. She asked me what kind of car I had. Mm-hmm. Oh it was gosh. able to fit into the trunk. I mean, she was absolutely wonderful. And when she found out some of the things that we were dealing with that we shouldn't have to be dealing with, she was furious for us. And she was there to fix it. And it was a wonderful experience. Wow. So this is important for everyone to know. If you're dealing with it, you know, don't do it for every little claim. But if you're dealing with something huge... Get a caseworker. Yes, get a case manager. Case manager, okay. And do you want to say her name? I don't remember her name. Oh. <laughs> it's in the book, I think. But I think I used a pseudonym for her, so I'm uh, not yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't think it was. I, I think it was a pseudonym. Okay. Anyway, I like to hear good stories. Yes. I think what's important about this, One Day We Dance, We'll Dance Again, mm-hmm. is that it's not all sad. No. It's not draggy, sad, oh my gosh, I can't read another minute of this because it's so sad. Right. There are, it, we're a family, and things happen in the family that sometimes, even though you don't want to laugh, are pretty funny. Yeah. One of my favorites was um, he wakes up at 4 in the morning and asks for chocolate pudding. And you said, we do not serve chocolate pudding at 4 a.m. <laughs> we do not. No, we do not. Hang on a second. Okay, and what were some of the funny things? I don't remember. When you say them, I'll know them. Well, you were talking about being Jewish, you know there's going to be food. Right. Oh, the chicken. (laughs) Should I tell about the chicken? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, here's one thing that, um, that I recognized because my father was dying one summer. And I didn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. And you oh. know why. It says, I was already tired of people looking at me with pity. I saw the women as they mouthed, oh, that poor woman, to each other as though I was not there. During Sunday services, as I passed by two women, one stage whispered to the other, that's the woman whose baby died. And the reason I did not tell anybody is I didn't want people looking at me funny. I didn't want that. Mm-hmm. I really didn't. I, I, I needed... Emotional support, but I didn't want pity. Yeah, there's a difference. People looking at you with those sad eyes. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's just, it's too much. I felt it was too much to bear. I'd rather people say nothing than, oh, this poor thing. Because I'm not the poor thing. Eric was the poor thing. Well, that isn't the way it looks from the outside. I mean, let's face it. He doesn't have any problems anymore. That's right. That's right. You are the one that have to deal with all of it yes. now. He doesn't. At least he's not dealing with the things he had to deal with. He didn't. He wasn't dealing with all the the pinpricks and the the tests and the the invasive therapies and the pain. And he doesn't have to put up with the indignity of not even being able to hold his head up. That's correct. Because his brain never. <laughs> So I hate to use that term because that was what the problem was, but his awareness, oh, and acuity never. He was managed. there till the last yeah. second. He was there until the last yeah. second. Because that part of the brain wasn't affected. Yes, and I think the worst thing for him, he 
was very hurt that he couldn't keep up with his brothers anymore. You could see the hurt in his eyes. And even when his best, he called him his best, best friend, Kyle, came to visit, it got to the point where he rejected Kyle because he was embarrassed that he couldn't play. Did you ever, we're going to talk about Kyle in a minute too, because he was an amazing friend. (laughs) Did it ever go through your head that seeing this, it might be better to overdose him with something? No, it didn't occur to me. Okay. I wanted him for as long as I could have him. And at that point where we were, I would have accepted him in any way. Yes, but what about him? That's the problem. I wasn't thinking about him. Okay. I wasn't thinking about him. I was thinking about him being with me. Yeah. And I had to accept that death was what was best at that time. Looking back at it, would, do you think it would have been a good idea towards the end to have overdosed him with something? No. No? Because okay. I, I, my belief would not allow that. Oh, okay, okay. It would not allow right, that. That, wasn't even, that yes. wouldn't, wouldn't even be a consideration. Okay. You're pretty much coming up with your own reality at this point. Mm-hmm. And what's acceptable for you. And that's this difference that was between my husband and I. That mm-hmm. my reality was more close to real than his was mm-hmm. um, up until the end. And that's something that we had to deal with. Even as bad off as Eric was, your husband still thought he was going to recover. Oh, yes. That's, that's the other thing. You say you don't want pity. It's difficult for people to know what to say to you. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you do give some hints on that. Like, don't pretend he wasn't there. Yes. Yeah. It's and okay don't say, to use oh, his name. This is the one that I cannot believe people do. Well, you still have two other children. Yes. Oh, that's, my that's insulting. That's yeah. insulting. Especially with twins. You you have people who say, well, anytime you miss Eric, just look at Aaron. They actually said that? Yes. And that that's not, no, don't say that. Now, what should people say? Should they just try to behave normally around you? Just be present more for you? Or be more available? I think they should acknowledge the situation. Mm-hmm. I feel that... They should not pretend the child didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I found comforting was people who could tell me things about him. Oh, yeah, remember when he did this? Remember when he said that? And I look at those things as wonderful because it Mm -hmm. shows that people not only knew him but appreciated him as a person. Um, The standard thing people say is, I'm sorry for your loss. That's because you can't think of anything else to say, and I hate that. What should they say? I'm here. Okay. I'm here. What do you need? Okay. Um, better than what do you need is stepping in and just doing it. Now, you have to have a certain level of connection with yes. the parent before yes. you do this. Mm-hmm. We, had, we had cousins who came in and cleaned the house from top to bottom because mm-hmm. it hadn't been cleaned in months because I was busy. Um, did the laundry, got the mail, uh, brought in some groceries. Mm-hmm. Take the kids somewhere, anywhere, the park, the movies, a a museum, for a walk even. Um, Stay connected with the other children. Don't disappear. That's the worst thing you can do. Don't ignore the situation. Be there for them in some manner that's comfortable for you. And I think that's the most important. Squeeze their hand. Give them a hug. If you have nothing to say, 
I don't know what to say. That's perfect. Okay, because that's what I usually say. Mm -hmm. Because I really don't know what to say because I know nothing I say is going to make a damn bit of difference. Nothing makes a difference. It really doesn't. But I'm here was Mm -hmm. the best thing I could hear. Just be there. I mean, things, things that help, gas cards. Um, little pin money for the for the um, hospital. Make sure you have some money to get a snack or something from the cafeteria or the vending machine. I, I had a friend that took and got the car filled up. It, it's just little things like that that make a, such a tremendous difference in the family and how it's running that that are so much appreciated. So basically, you want people to allow your life to go on as normally as possible. As normally as possible. There's another thing I want to look at here. This was at the funeral. Um, oh, and I love the way you handled the the, uh, the twin, Aaron, didn't want to go. Yes. And I love the way you handled that. It's like you, you regretted not seeing him more before, just before he died. Right. You will regret this. You are going. <laughs> You are going. Yeah. There's no question about whether you're going, but the way we handled it was we assigned a relative to Mm -hmm. him. He came in when he was comfortable. When he was uncomfortable, that relative took him back out. They waited until he could come back in. Eventually, he was able to sit through part of the service, but you can't expect a nine-year-old to be able to wrap his head around what's happening. You have his brother sitting at the front of the church presented and they're having them close the lid is the worst thing for me how do you think it's going to make him feel and yeah i I just think um a small coffin has to be one of the worst sights yes it's very sad yeah and when you were when you were looking at him you know you're doing the, the viewing and he was tucked in with his Redskins blanket because he was a Redskins, Redskins fan. fanatic. Um, and I wanted to grip the sides of the casket and scream. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble reading this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I wanted to drag him out and beg God to bring him back. I understand that. That's always what you want to do. It's like, stop it. Yes. It was so difficult. And... The thing that kept me from doing that was not the hundreds of people who were there. It's the fact that that's the last thing Eric would have wanted me to do. Oh. That's how I felt that, that he would not. I'm, I'm crying at that and you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I cried when I wrote the book. And you're listening to In Other Words. I'm your host, Susan Sher, and my guest is Angela Ware, author of One Day We'll Dance Again. What I know is that most marriages do not survive the loss of a child. How did you? I mean, particularly when you had such different ways of handling it when he was dying. Well, I knew because I had done research, I majored in sociology. Oh, okay. And one of the courses we had was death and dying. Mm -hmm. And in part of that, we looked at the statistics, Mm -hmm. various statistics, and one of them was on marriages. And what is it, like 75%, 80%? It's about 80%. Yeah. And um, it's hard because you both handle it differently. Mm -hmm. You both handle the situation differently. Mm -hmm. You both have different feelings about how things were handled. 
Yeah. A lot of times you don't share those. I would think there's a lot of blame. Completely irrational. But. Yes. There is. There's, there's the guilt. There's whether or not you appreciate how the other person is dealing with the grief. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the issues we had was I handled all the arrangements myself because my husband was unable to at that time. Well, that was also the agreement you had made. We didn't have an agreement. Oh, wait, I, I'm talking about the medical treatment. Oh, You're talking yeah, about, the, about yeah. the arrangements. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. He was unable to do it. He just could not do it. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it had to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, your your family had my family taken care. They of had taken of care of a lot. Yes, yeah. but the final details had to be from me. Yeah, from your, the fa- parent. your family knew. They knew, and yeah. and they had as much as they could. Yes, prearranged. They had a secret meeting. Yes, that uh, where they assigned tasks to certain people. They they handled a lot of the details that I hadn't even thought about. The night he died, I didn't. I wouldn't have known what to do next. He would have probably been there until the next day. They they made the arrangements ahead of time. Who to contact? Mm-hmm. The night he died, they already had the number. They knew who to call. The people knew where to come. How did they know he had died? When I told them, they called. The oh, company. okay. So you did call your family. Yes. Say, okay. Okay. I had a cousin. I and a cousin were making phone calls and one of the cousins was contacted and she had been responsible for contacting the company who had been talked to it in advance yeah to let them know that this Mm -hmm. giving them a heads up yeah so that it was an you know everybody was aware of what was going on Mm -hmm. and that was that was a real blessing that i didn't have to deal with that detail Mm -hmm. there's so many details that you you really don't Mm -hmm. consider yeah so how was it your knowledge that Couples often fight after the death of a child that kept you to you and Jeff from splitting up. Because I know that my, my aunt and uncle, they were told, you are going to start fighting. You are going to start blaming each other. Don't do it. The awareness definitely helped. Okay. It's not where you sit in and say to your spouse, okay, you realize that 80% of the couples who go through this are not going to make it. It's just something you realize that you're going to have to work at. Right. And... The, our problem was there wasn't a lot of discussion. At the most, one of us might mumble, I really miss him. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about it. He didn't mm-hmm. want to talk about it. Um, I felt that I'd been second-guessed through the entire process. Because every time I made a decision, he'd ask me why. Or, well, not why as an in information, but why would you even decide that? And I felt if we had sat and talked about it, we could have made the decision together. Don't allow me to make the decision and then question my decision. <laughs> so this went through the entire process mm-hmm. d- during his treatment and everything. Uh, the only thing we agreed on was um, radiation and NIH because we had to both be there and both give permission. Yeah, and let's say that NIH, uh, National Institutes of National Institutes of, of Health in Bethesda, and Johns Hopkins Hospital were both uh, wonderful yes. in all of this. His main hospital was Children's National Medical Center in oh, Washington, right. D.C., right. but he did. we did go to Johns Hopkins at mm-hmm. one point to get a second opinion, mm-hmm. and they were and, wonderful. And they said, what you're doing is fine. Yeah, but the, we, <laughs> yeah. The, we were getting the best possible care we could get. Yeah, that would be good to know. Yes, that took a lot of weight off of us because... Yeah. You, you would always wonder, what if I'd done this? What if I dragged him around to different places? Mm-hmm. What about St. Jude's? What about mm-hmm. this? What about that? It, it wouldn't have made a difference. 
and we we had expert opinions who could tell us it wouldn't have made a difference. See, that I would think would be one of the hardest things to deal with is why. Not that why makes a difference, but I would imagine you would ask yourself that endlessly. You'll ask that forever, I think. Yeah. I think you'll ask that forever. I still wonder. And mm-hmm. I think the hardest part for all of us right now is Aaron is going through a, a, a new phase in his life where he's dealing with graduation and prom and looking at colleges. And his and, brother isn't doing And it his with brother him. isn't doing it with him. Mm-hmm. And it's very, I, I can see how difficult it is for him. And one of the things that would be difficult for the children, I'm sure, he got a lot of extra treats and stuff. Yes. Eric did. Eric did. And, of course, the brothers were jealous, even though they realized that they didn't want to switch places with him. Yes. But I would imagine once he died, they'd have a lot of guilt about that. They did. How do you deal with that with him? Uh, Aaron especially went through that because there was an episode where he did explode because... Eric was getting all these wonderful toys and mm-hmm. treats and, a, you know, a SpongeBob SquarePants television and things mm-hmm. like that. I love the and father's <laughs> response to that. Boy, who'd you con that out of? <laughs> yeah. And he was just livid that his brother was getting these. Also, Aaron did not like school. The only reason Aaron showed up for school was because Eric was there. Mm-hmm. Eric loved school. And he was tortured because he could not attend school. It really hurt him that he couldn't go to school. And Aaron thought every time we left the house to go to treatment, we were going somewhere fun. He actually thought that? He thought we were having a blast while he was at school. Oh, my gosh. He did not understand He did not understand it, you know, but you're talking to a six, seven-year-old. Right, yeah. And once, I don't know if I included this or not, I picked him up from school. He had raced home from National Children's National oh, to yeah, pick him I up in time for school. And I have to do the voices. Aaron had a really deep voice, and mm-hmm. Eric had a lisp. And Aaron gets in the car, and he already has an attitude, you can tell. And he slams the door, and he says, well, what did you and, what did you and Mom do today while I was at school? And Eric says, well... First we left you, then we went to House of Pancakes, then we went to Six Flags, then we went to Hershey Park. We had a break and we had lunch at at Pizza Hut. After Pizza Hut, we went to Toys R Us. And after Toys R Us, we went to go to movies. And after the movies, we came and got you. <laughs> he lost his mind. I it, And he's he's just apoplectic about this, I mean, hiccuping and, and twitching and uh, oh, furious. And I said, Aaron, do you actually think we could have done all those things in one day? He says, no. Then why are you so upset? Because it sounds so cool. <laughs> and it was just so funny that Eric, I mean, you he kept his sense of humor the entire time, yeah. but he thought that was great. <laughs> and how he came up with it so fast, but he knew his brother could not stand the fact that he wasn't in school. Oh, I said I wanted to talk about Kyle. That was his friend who, at, at the, the, one of the birthday parties, Eric couldn't go skating with everybody else. Yes. And so Kyle sat on the bench with him. Kyle was his best, best friend. Yeah. And when you're talking to a seven-year-old at a skating party mm-hmm. who decides to spend his time with you because you're not allowed to skate because you might fall and break your shunt that's in your head... That's a true friend. Yeah, at seven years old, and yeah. And Kyle had difficulty. We found that after Eric's death, we didn't have that much 
uh, contact with him because Kyle was Eric's friend, not Aaron's friend. Right. And Kyle had a very, very difficult time dealing with the death of Eric because they were such good friends. I mean, he was he was the child who his mom would bring him over after school and he and Eric would lay on the sofa and play with army men and because he knew he couldn't walk and, and go outside and play. And she oh, brought him wow. over. She was wonderful. Kyle's mom was fantastic and would bring him over to play and they were so they were so very close and she allowed him to keep that part of his childhood where he could play with his friends wow and for a kid to have a best best friend like that is just Mm. something that you can't buy do you know how kyle is doing now i spoke to kyle about a year ago Mm -hmm. and he's doing great now oh good he's doing really good good and a year ago he was how old that would make him 16. 16, okay. Mm-hmm. So your boy's 17 and 19 now, yes, right? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Yeah, okay. Now, we said we were going to talk about the, the other boys. So Bryce, uh, what's he doing now? He is in the Marines. His goal is to become a member of the Marine Corps Band. Oh, what's he play? He plays everything. Huh. Uh, his instrument of choice is the euphonium. I've heard of that, but I don't know what it is. It's a cross between a tuba and a trumpet. Okay. It's huge, mm-hmm. but it's not as big as a tuba. Okay. And he's he's very good at that. Mm-hmm. He plays the trumpet. He He's starting to play the piano. He plays... Uh, he was first chair uh, cello at school and he once he came to me and he asked me for a cello and at this point I wasn't working mm-hmm. he says can I have a cello for my birthday I said oh yeah let me go downstairs and print some $20 bills and go get you one and a few weeks later he had some uh, winter concert and I walk in to sit where I usually sit to watch him play the trumpet mm-hmm. and he's sitting first chair cello and I said what are you doing first chair cello he says I told you I needed a cello that I needed a cello for my birthday, he asked one of the kids to show him how to play it, and he played so well, he won first chair. So he's a very, very talented mm-hmm. musician. Yeah. And he, he really wants to travel. And, of course, as first chair, the school provides the, the cello. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, so now his goal is to join the Marine Corps Band and travel. Wow. So he's doing great. Excellent. Now, Aaron started a company... When he was 10 years old. Yes. Roughly a year after his brother's death. Yes. And it's called Sweets by Aaron Dojangles. Yes. I love the Dojangles yes. part. This began because he was dealing with so much emotion and depression mm-hmm. and he just was, he was just fading away because his brother was gone and I, we tried so many different things to get him to a point where he could deal with it and it wasn't working. I called my pediatrician, Dr. Marilyn Quarter, and asked, told her that I needed her to talk to him because I didn't know what other options we had. And I brought him in under the premise of giving him a physical mm-hmm. and left them alone and she talked to him about how he was doing. And somehow she got the conversation on, well, what do you like to do? And he says, well, I like to bake. And this woman pulled a 20 out of her pocket, gave it to Aaron, and told him, this is what I want you to do. I want you to start a company. I want you to come up with a name. I want you to come up with a business plan. And I want you to bring me samples. 
And we got in the car and Aaron started chattering mm-hmm. and trying to come up with names that incorporated Eric and Aaron. And he's chattering and smiling and laughing. We hadn't seen this in months. Oh. He hadn't laughed or smiled since Eric died. Wow. And one of those is because he felt guilty that if he smiled or laughed, it was minimizing Eric's death. And I felt the same way. So I understood where that, by the from. way, is not true. You have to laugh. It's not true. You do have to laugh. But there's a point in the beginning where you feel so guilty about laughing that you just can't. And okay. I, I would, I, every time I laughed, I felt it was accidental and I felt very guilty about it. Hmm. But he's laughing and smiling and halfway home, he says, I've got it. Go Jangles. And I said, what did you say? He says, D-O-U-G-H Jangles. Wonderful. So we went home. He started talking about what he wanted to do. We started baking. A week later, we went back to the to Wait, the pediatrician. The, the twenty was to buy the supplies. To buy the supplies, okay. he bought the supplies. He bought. He made the cookies. And a week later, we took a tray back up to her. Mm-hmm. And that's how that's how the business began. And people heard about it. And we had a company in a law firm in New York who did pro bono work on our trademark mm-hmm. licensing and. We had people help us with uh, different various parts of the business paperwork and mm-hmm. a label company who that that made uh, something like $2,500 in free labeling for us, a design wow. company that came up with the design for the logo, a lot of people who pitched in to help, and it was wonderful. It was a great mm-hmm. experience for him because now he was the center of attention. Yeah, and he was doing something Doing he something loved. he loved, yes. Yeah. So... That that business shut down, but it's going to be reopening. Yes, we had to close in December of last year because we just weren't bringing in the revenue we we needed, and that was mostly because with Aaron in school, I was the only one running the business. Okay, and I'm dealing with marketing and research mm-hmm. and paperwork and in in taxes, and mm-hmm. one person can't do it. And I had to understand that not everyone succeeds in their first business venture. And this was my first business venture. Mm-hmm. So we've closed the company Most temporarily. Most don't succeed in their first business venture. Mm-hmm. And um, so we shut the company down and uh, made our, comp- our clients aware that what we're down right now, but we're planning to reorganize. And we're organizing as a 501c3, a nonprofit. The reason we're doing that is because... We gave most of our stuff away anyway to cancer support groups. Uh, Mm -hmm. We gave it to sick children. We did birthday baskets with toys and cookies in them. And it just makes more sense to work as a nonprofit. Yeah. So hopefully in the next year or so, I'll be able to reorganize and start all over. So is it Sweets by Aaron or Dojangles? How does that work? The legal name is Sweets by Aaron Dojangles, but we call it Dojangles. Okay. Okay. So look for that to be resurfacing. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this is what he's going to do when he gets out of college. He's not sure what he's going to do. I know I'm going to do it. Oh, okay. Uh, Right now he is uh, looking at culinary schools. He loves to cook. So that's what he does. Wonder where he got that from. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) One of, when you all were trying to function as a family after Eric's death, I think the most poignant thing that I read in the book was the first time you went out to dinner. Yes. Because you don't ask for a table for five. That's correct. Yes, for a table for four. And th- that makes it weight, awfully real. 
oh my gosh, the weight of that was so real. And we all were just, we didn't know what to do. We actually were kind of confused asking for a table for four. And it was just a turning point for us that there were just four of us now instead of five. How long after his death was that? I'd say it was maybe two months after he died. We oh, went that's out to not dinner. Much. Yeah. yeah, we decided to go out to dinner. And, and what you say in the book is you started complaining there weren't enough seats. Yes. Even though I'd said table for four. Yeah. You know, by the time we got seated, I was looking for enough chairs for everyone. So it's always in your head. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. used to counting to three, checking, make sure I have three kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I always ask table for five because there are five of us and making sure there are five seats and five tickets. And it's just really hard. And the sad part about having guilt about different aspects of something that happens to the, like this is I used to fret about when, you know, when you buy those travel packages for skiing oh, okay. and they'll say okay you'll get four lift tickets you'll get your room will accommodate four people you'll get four dinner things and if you have a fifth person it costs extra and oh. i always complain we'd always have to pay for that fifth person and now i didn't have to worry about that because there were only four of us mm-hmm. and i felt so guilty that i didn't have to worry about that anymore if, if that makes any sense yeah because i complained i didn't it was easier because he died. That's that's it. And yeah, that's it. And that was really tough. I imagine it would be. So there are a lot of things you don't think about that come mm-hmm. up that you don't. You know, when, when you buy dishes, they come in sets of four or eight, four, eight or twelve. That's right. So you know, we'd have to buy instead of a pack of four, I'd have to buy two packs of four. Mm-hmm. And you you think, man, you know, if we were only four of us, mm-hmm. we could have just bought the set of four. And, and to think about, you said that? You actually said that? And now you're not feeling any relief that you can only have to buy four tickets. It's, it's bad. It's not good at all. But it is easier. Which, and, and then, uh, therefore, the guilt. Yes. Yeah. It is. One thing I know about the death of a child is you don't ever get over it. You simply get past it. Yes. I think, I try not to say getting over it because I feel like when people say you need to get over it, it's it's minimizing it. You're not going to get over it. You're not going to get over it. I say getting through it mm-hmm. to go on to a new phase in my life. Right. And and that's that's how I describe it. You, you're not moving on because you're not pushing out of the way. You're not getting over it because you're not forgetting about it. You're getting through it to evolve and become a different person. You're always going to be a different person. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be the mom you used to be. You're, you're, you're going to be a different mom. Mm-hmm. You're going to handle things differently. One of the things I considered that I handle differently is injuries don't phase me at all. <laughs> um, my son came in complaining about a boo-boo. And he was injured, but I told him, unless you're bleeding out of the eyes, I am not interested. (laughs) And that's just, I had been through so much that unless you can show me a gory injury that requires you to be airlifted out, I am not interested. Go to your father. He didn't have to deal with this. I did. That's your daddy's job. So it's, it's been funny about that because they're just like, what do we have to do to get your attention about this? Come in with a spike through your shoulder. Yes, yeah, that pretty much, I can handle that. 
But I, I told him, unless you're bleeding out of the eyes, I don't come to me. Go to your daddy. And and, and dad did handle and it. Dad handled it. Okay. Yeah. And how is he doing? He's handling it in his own way. Mm-hmm. He doesn't talk about it. As you say, part of it is you don't know how he's doing. Yeah, do you? that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, October fourth, he asked me how I was doing, just out of the blue, and I said that was the day he died. That's the day he died, yeah. and I said I'm I'm doing okay. And I didn't. I was trying to wonder why he said it because it was just out of the blue, mm-hmm. and I said. Are you asking me because of what day it is? And he said, yeah. And that's how strange that part of our relationship is. He won't say, today's his anniversary, I miss him too. He's gotten to the point where he can say, how are you? Well, that's a huge leap forward for him. Yes, yes. You know, um, when I went back to work, I had taken October 4th off because I knew how nutty I had been on October 3rd. And I didn't want to put my coworkers through that. And so when we were getting dressed, I asked my husband, are you going to work today? And he said, why? Is it a holiday? And Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So that didn't go over very well. And I don't think it hit him what I was saying until after he'd left for work. Oh. Okay. But I had no intention of going anywhere because, you know, I had my crying jag the day before at school. At work, right. So. I wasn't going to subject my coworkers to that again. Mm-hmm. But it's just the way we handle it. And, and it's it's always going to be difficult because we're not in the same in the same place. Mm-hmm. And I think I don't think we're ever going to be in the same well, place. Well, I was going to say this is something you knew before you married him. Mm-hmm. And what's going on now is the family is functioning. The functioning family, well. Well, Bryce is gone. So it's the Wait house is even smaller. You've got to define that Bryce being Bryce gone. is in the military. <laughs> yes, he's not in the house. <laughs> so he's not in the house, which makes it another transition. Yes. And another thing to get used to. And it's it's difficult. Mm-hmm. The house is even quieter now. Well, every parents go through all yeah. parents go through that. Yeah, but I think the the empty nest here is is even more significant it's because mm-hmm. you you've got one mm-hmm. more left, not two more, you got one more left and that's mm-hmm. harder. Yeah. So, but in general, you're functioning. We're doing okay, and you're doing all right. And the boys are doing great. The boys are doing great, and they're never going to get over it either. No, but they're functioning, mm-hmm. and they're functioning well. And that was my goal. I had to come up with new goals, and to get them to function was one of those. And you did it. I think so. You and the pediatrician. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we've been talking with Angela Ware, Angela Brown Ware. And I say that because if you're going to do a Google search for her, you, you need to have the, the maiden name, Angela Brown Ware. The book is called One Day We'll Dance Again. It is worth it just for the resources at the end that tell, give the parents in situations like this tips and give those who want to help tips. It's really an excellent resource, but... Just this the story, it's really well told. Thank you. And you can find this on Amazon. And you can also find it at, um, we, it, we have a Facebook page under One Day We'll Dance Again. You can contact me directly through the Facebook page, or you can email me at danceagain2012 at gmail.com. That's danceagain2012 at gmail.com. So that's... 
And you've been listening to In Other Words, part of Perfect World Network Radio. You can find us at pwnradio.net. You can find me, your host, Susan Scher, and my editing and writing business, In Other Words, at inotherwordsgroup.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Join us again. Bye-bye. In other words. In other words. In other words. In other words.